All right, good morning, everybody. Hopefully. I'll be leading worship today. <laughs> worship is more than just singing. Um, but as people make their way in, I do, I do want to start our time of singing um, with, with, a, with, a, with a word here and then a, a time of prayer, sort of in light of this week's passage. Um, in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, Jesus says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when it comes in the glory of his Father and with holy angels. And so this, this is the passage where Jesus talks about you know, picking up your cross and following him. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a heavy passage. And in light of this passage, um, this week I found myself studying much on uh, the persecuted church and, and what m- most of the world goes through um, as they do what we're about to do. Um, we, we take it lightly, we take it um, irreverently sometimes that we don't realize the, the miracle that occurs in many respects. For most of the world, when they look at the church in America, they think that's an absolute miracle. Um, there's a book that I've been reading, or I've read it, um, called The Insanity of God. It came to me th- through Lindsey Gray uh, before the girls went to Africa. She said, could you have them read this book? And so I read it as well. And it's this man who spent most of his life um, going to, to the, the churches in areas of severe persecution. And at the end of the book, he writes this. When I worship on Sunday mornings with American congregations and we stand to lift our voices and spirits together in congregational singing, I am reminded of one of the most hostile countries on earth. Believers in that country secretly meet in groups of three or four or five at different times each week to share, worship, and quote-unquote sing their favorite praise songs by silently mouthing the words together to keep the neighbors from turning them into the secret police. And this is, this is the reality for most of Christianity, that there are individuals that will be gathered throughout the week and their time of worship is that they mouth the words to one another for fear of being caught and hauled into prison. And so I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to pray and um, let us sing kind of knowing the, the, the really, the truly, the privilege that this is to worship our God together in this way that most of the world does not have. Um, So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you that we can gather together to uh, focus on the cross, that we can focus on what Jesus uh, did for us, that we can celebrate this life that we have in him. Father, I thank you for each person that's here uh, today to worship you. We thank you that we have this freedom to truly praise you. Father, I pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts uh, to the truths um, that we are singing to you. Father, may we be genuine in our worship. 
Uh, We are grateful again for this time that we have to worship you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. With that, let's, let's pray. Um, Father, we do thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for this time that we are here uh, to, to worship you, to fellowship with one another, to, to learn um, from, your, from your word. Uh, Lord, as we go through this passage, we, um, we ask that you would allow it to, to, to push on us, to, to make us feel uncomfortable, to... Um, um, to make us question where we, where we stand and are following you. Um, Lord, I pray that um, as the scripture pushes on us, it would be like the winds pushing on the oak trees, making them stronger. Lord, I ask that uh, through this, this passage that you would um, help us to grow more resilient in our walk with you, that we would uh, have a clearer picture of what Jesus did on our behalf and what he asks of us in following him. Uh, Lord, we live in a part of the world where um, it's easy to respond to your message, so, so easy that we can manipulate it to say whatever we want it to say without really fear or consequences. And, and, and this is not normal for those who have followed you over the centuries. And so, Father, I pray um, that you would Um, strengthen us in our walk with you, Um, help us to to truly evaluate what it's saying and that we would uh, ultimately walk away um, from today's passage with a deeper conviction of following after you regardless of the consequences that we may suffer Um, for anything in this life is nothing uh, compared to the hope that we have with you in eternity. And so we ask that your spirit would move in our midst through this time. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to worship you in this way. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so before we read the passage, just a a little bit of uh, sort of an introduction. Um, It was perfect this morning when I came in and turned on the church computer. It was like wonderful. It was like, well, maybe it wasn't that surprising because it happens all the time. So I turned on the church computer and this pop-up window surfaced about up, uh, you know, updating software that is there. And so this has been on my mind all week because we, we click the acknowledge and accept the process. And so today it was the, uh, we needed to update the software for iTunes for Windows on the computer. And I never, like, does anybody read all of this stuff? You know, the 38 pages of acknowledgments? Today, because I knew what I was going to say, I kind of, like, I'm like, I'm going to read it. I got about two lines in. I'm like, I'm not reading this. I scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and click it. And, and so, so many times throughout the week, if you have an electronic device, you're getting a hey, you have to acknowledge that we're using cookies. We're uh, whatever a cookie is. They're not the kind that I like. Uh, You have to, we're redefining our terms and we just kind of click it, you know? And I wonder if they've ever thrown something in there like the developers, like, hey, you owe us $100, you know, that they could take us to court on. Um, 
The, and the reason I, I, I think about this is I, as I think in so many ways, in America in particular, with Christianity, we sort of click the acknowledgments without having any idea what we're signing up for. Um, so far in Mark, it's been pretty easy peasy. It's been pretty nice. You know, Jesus going around, spitting people's eyes, making them be able to see, spitting people's ears, making them be able to hear, uh, feeding people, you know, all the good stuff. Today, everything changes. This is sort of the, there, there is a, a line that we're crossing over in, in the gospel of Mark today. In all of the gospels, this line exists. And Jesus clarifies to his disciples and to his followers, what does it mean to, to follow him? And so, so unfortunately that, that most of American Christianity, we live in an age where we strip away the difficult things, we put frosting on the gospel, and we, we basically so neuter the gospel that it doesn't say what it actually says, so that it becomes palatable for us. And then we wonder why Americans go through their life and they stub their toe, and it's like, well, I'm done following Jesus because everything's going against me. And then when you go across the world and you go into these places, like I read before, where there are Christians having to stagger where they meet. They have to hide it from the world. And their time of singing songs is literally just moving their lips to the worship songs that they know and love without singing them for fear that they would be hauled away and imprisoned. Um, the, the reality is what we signed for up, what we, what we uh, let me get my, what we signed up for, that's Christianity is what they have. What we have is an exception. Um, so, so much of today, if you're like me, as I study through this passage this week, you're going to be made very uncomfortable. Um, you might move from feeling uncomfortable to processing what's being said to where you get a little bit fired up and you're like, yeah, I'm in. Some of you may say, I'm not into this. This isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what following Jesus looks like to me. Um, other views might, other of you might be on the outside kind of looking in and really processing, um, do I want this sort of Christianity? And, and so Christianity is not mine to define. It's not for you to define. It's, it's Jesus defines Christianity. And so my prayer is that as we look at this passage, that we have clarity for what the gospel is as we take communion today, um, and that we would have clarity of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to, to be one who follows Jesus. The, the, really, the, as Bonhoeffer you know, wrote in, from prison, the, the cost of discipleship. Uh, and so with that, we're going to read our passage. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 27. <clears throat> Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes 
and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And Father, we do thank you again for your word. We thank you for these words that were preserved by us, for us, uh, by Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would give us understanding, clarity, convict us, Lord, uh, motivate us, Lord, uh, encourage us in our path with you. For the temptations are great around us. Our flesh uh, is so bent towards sin um, that we ask that you would intervene in our lives so that we would bring glory to you in all that we do, all that we say, all that we think. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so we ease into this, verse 27. Uh, we find ourselves, there's a map. Um, the Sea of Galilee is where the arrow starts. It moves 25 miles to the north to Caesarea Philippi. Not to be confused with Caesarea that's on the coast. Um, So Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So this is a unique location with a a rich history. I kind of debated how much to share here today about the history of of, um, Caesarea Philippi. Um, It... it, I'm kind of thinking, how much do I want to share or not share? If you went to Israel, you're going to Israel, you will have visited this place. And this is up by, uh, it's Beneus is this, this spring. It's one of the springs that feeds um, the, the Sea of Galilee, ultimately the Jordan River. It's a beautiful location. Um, at the, where the spring comes up or where it used to come up prior to an earthquake, it's this huge cliff. And you can see all of the carvings and, and there was just, a, a smattering of, of uh, false gods that were, were worshipped there over the centuries. Um, pan, like bread in Spanish, is, 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 the, is one of the gods that was worshipped, and they believe that this, this area where the spring went into the earth, where the water came from, is that th- that was the, the way to the underworld. And so just a bunch of satanic, creepy things happened. This was not a Jewish part of the region. And this is the place that Jesus takes his disciples. Um, And so as they're making their way there, uh, really on a side note, it's one of the most beautiful places in in all of Israel. It's my favorite up there. Um, And so as he's making his way there, he asks them, who who do people say that I am? And so this is a great question. This this question hasn't grown old. Um, 
I, I, I watched a bunch of videos. You know, you can go on YouTube and go, who do people say that I am? And it's something like two billion hits or something of like, and you, you'll find people in the mall at churches like asking people questions. And so a lot of, most people say, well, Jesus was a good, a good man, a great teacher. Uh, um, some would say he's a prophet. Most people would say, oh, he's a scam artist, one of the best scam artists that ever lived. Um, some would say it's totally a fictional character. This is just sort of uh, to totally made up. And then there are others, like some of us here, that would answer he's Lord. Um, and so Jesus now, we're approaching the cross, we're getting closer to the cross, and, and, and the, the training of the 12 is, is increasing. And he says, now who does everybody say that I am? And you can see in their answer, they have a very Jewish perspective, a very Jewish uh, uh, acquaintanceship, if that's a word, of, of who they hang out with. Uh, the first thing they spit out is John the Baptist. We saw this a, a few chapters ago. I, I don't know if it was chapter 5, but when Jesus sent them out two by two, Mark gives this interlude of, of as they went out and they were doing the various things that... Uh, Herod sort of got wind of it and, and was like, he thought that John the Baptist had risen from the dead. And he was horrified because he thought that this was like uh, the ghost had risen and that he was coming back for him for what he'd done and he'd feel bad about. Um, others said Elijah, this great prophet that was ascended into heaven, maybe that he'd come back, who they were anticipating uh, to come back. Um, they said, well, others just think that he's one of the, the prophets. He's a, he, he's a prophet. He's a good, godly man. Uh, he's doing good things. All, all of these options, there were, were uh, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking at? There was no denying that Jesus was somebody significant. Nobody said, oh, he's just a carpenter. He's no, only in Nazareth did they say that. Uh, but, but everybody who knew and saw the miracles, the, their responses and the, the things that were circulating about Jesus they were significant answers. And then Jesus continues, and he says to the disciples, and he continued, verse 29, by questioning them. But how, what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And we're going to see that Peter answered, and you know, Peter, the, the spokesman in today's passage, he's going to go from hero to hobo. Uh, he, you know, he reacts, and then he doesn't shut up. And he keeps talking, and then he kind of gets himself in a pickle. But, but he starts out well. P Peter, sort of the, the, the spokesman of the apostles, the, the, old, the oldest of them, he spouts out the correct answer. You are the Christ. Now, Christ is Greek word, the Greek word for Messiah, that, that Jesus is the anointed one, the one who all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that they had been waiting for in the, the, the story of salvation that they had been waiting for, that all of the prophecies pointed to this Messiah that would arise and Jesus says, you are, Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Christ. Um, in Matthew's account, this is where G there's a little play on words. Peter's name means small rock. Uh, he uses this inner chain saying what you've said, you, like you're, this proclamation is the rock. 
It ties into the location that this is a huge rock at Caesarea Philippi. Um, We're not going to go into all of this because Mark doesn't go into all of this. But he just, he sticks the landing. He says, you are the Christ. And at that point, Jesus tells him, tells him, and he warned, he warned them to tell no one about him. He's like, you're correct in what you say, but you need to keep it shut. Don't go telling people yet. Now, there's a lot of, um, you know, why would Jesus say this to them at this point? And I, I think that the reality is, is their training wasn't complete. They, um, <clears throat> they had more that they needed to learn about Jesus. Uh, many have suggested that um, if we were to go back to uh, verse 24, in the last section that we looked at last week when there was the blind man, and Jesus spits in his eyes and he says, well, how's that? Kind of like being at the optometrist when they're doing all the slides. How about that? How about that? How about that? And the guy says, ah, I see men, but they look like trees kind of going back. I don't, I don't have clarity. And then Jesus does a little more, and then we're told that he, he sees everything clearly. Now, it, Jesus, we believe, did this to teach a spiritual truth to the disciples, that they were seen in part, but they didn't have full understanding. And so J- Peter, when he responds, you're the Christ, he has, okay, I, I see that you're the Christ. Uh, I see in part. But Jesus says, I don't want you to say anything because you don't have the maturity Namely, you don't see Isaiah 53, the crucifixion and the suffering that I have to go through. You have more training to do before you're qualified to go out and teach. And we'll, we'll see that within this section as this, as this tipping point, Matthew says that from this point he began teaching them about the cross. This is all new information to the disciples. So far, they're seeing the miracles. They're seeing the good things. They, they are all fired up about this close proximity to the Messiah but they had no idea what was going to happen to them. And so then Jesus, after he says, you need it, don't tell anybody at this point. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. That last sentence kind of, I, I, you know, you wish you could read more to this. Here are the disciples. We know that Mark was an understudy of Peter. It's believed that the gospel of Mark is, it's really the gospel of Peter that's, that comes through Mark. And as they look back at this moment, they, they, they all, this moment was a huge, profound moment for them in their, their life and times with Jesus. Then all of a sudden, he started talking about the cross and they weren't ready to hear it. But it's like this line of demarcation in their studies. And... Jesus is like he just started, he just stated it plainly. Oh yeah, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, they're gonna kill me. I'm gonna go on for a couple of days and I'll rise up again. And uh we'll then we'll just continue on to the next point. Like, whoa, whoa what did you just say? <laughs> so what did he say? Like, so the plan for the Christ, which is there in Isaiah 53, which for many years was so questioned by skeptics, that, there's, that it's impossible for Isaiah 53 to exist in the Old Testament, that it had to have been inserted after the resurrection of Christ, after Christ's time. It, 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 the precision is so 
accurate, that it's impossible. And, and that's why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so fascinating that when they were discovered, it predates the life of Christ by a few hundred years, and that Isaiah 53 exists in 100% purity. And so he said, you know, the, the Son of Man, referring to Daniel chapter 9 that we studied earlier in the year or maybe last year, that the Christ has to suffer many things. The Son of Man, the Messiah, is going to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Certainly they've seen that already. Certainly Mark's documented at the end of chapter 3 that, that they had already began their quest to have him arrested, to, to have him executed. They just didn't know how they were going to fit all the pieces together. He says cl- plainly to them that he's going to die and that he's going to rise three days later. And he's just stating this all plainly, and Peter wouldn't have this. As the spokesman, you know, as, as the older, wiser one, he needed to talk to Peter. So what does he do? Peter needs to talk to Jesus. <clears throat> so like a good leader, he doesn't do it publicly because that would just be, you know. But so Peter takes Jesus aside. And begins to rebuke him. Like that's, you know, that's, uh, it never really goes well to rebuke Jesus. <laughs> but, but like, what's Peter saying to him? Like, I, like, it's easy to make fun of Peter, but they've seen miracles already. They've ex- they, they have been given Jesus' authority to do miracles. I, how, how could this end this way? Um, I, I think to the Lord's Supper when Peter, like, as, as, as it's continuing and it's like, may it never be, Peter's still like saying, no, it's not. You're not going to die. Like, I'm, like, I'll die before I deny you sort of thing. And so this is sort of the, the Peter is so hard-headed and so determined to kind of force the situation a certain direction. And so he's rebuking Jesus. No, you're not going to get arrested. There, you're, there, none of it. We're going to. We, we, we'll, we're fishermen. We're tough guys. We'll stop them. They're just a bunch of soft scholars. Like we can deal with them. Verse thirty-three. But turning around, Jesus and seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter, and said, "Get behind me, Satan." And that had to hurt. I mean, this is. We look back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which started with the temptation of Christ. Um, the temptation of Christ ultimately was Satan offering a way to, bypra- to bypass the cross. At, at the night which he's betrayed in Gethsemane, when Jesus is praying, what does he pray? Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, let it pass. If there's any other way, Jesus knew the, the agony that he was about to go through and suffering for the sins of the world. It's not like in his humanity that this is something that he wanted to go through. He willingly went through it, but we see the, the difficulty in it. And so here as Peter is saying this, there's a temptation. And he's saying, you're tempting me as Satan would tempt me to try to bypass this. This is the plan of the Father. And, say, and Peter, you need to get your mind on God's interests, not on man's. And this is one of those phrases I think that all of us could hear, like, how often do we set our things on the things of man? What our peers think, what, what 
our, our goals, our aspirations, how we go about life. This has been super like convict, like this. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but, in, but man's. Paul would later write in Colossians 3.2 to instruct believers, instruct us, that we're to set our mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. There's this constant temptation. There's this constant pull for our minds. There's a battle for what we think in the heavenly realm, and we're constantly looking at earthly things. And the earthly things are what sort of drive us. And we're told, look up. Look up. Look at God. What is God doing in this midst? What is God doing in this, this circumstance and this suffering and this pain, this sorrow, this, this trial that you're going through? What does God think about it? That's where you need to set your mind because that's the better option. Even if in the present time it means more suffering for you. Even though it doesn't seem like it's a good thing in the moment. Certainly going to the cross didn't seem like a good thing for the Messiah. But had he not gone, salvation wouldn't be available to us. So verse 34, he summoned the crowd and his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me. And I would suggest that much of Christianity, like Isaiah 53, we've sort of deleted the rest of this passage from our thinking. Or at least in American Christianity. And if we're honest with ourselves. if we really allow our like motives and our heart to be sort of laid open before God, this, this should be, like this is extremely challenging. This isn't like a one-time decision. This is like, a, I think, a struggle that happens daily. So we live in a culture that's all about how do we get thousands of people to show up on a Sunday? Well, let's bring in jumping machines and let's, let's turn Sunday school into Chuck E. Cheese and let's do all of these things. And, that, and, and for the adults too. Let's, let's talk about topics that just make us feel good. Let's, let's sort of not deal with the issue of sin and the consequences and, and the cross. And Jesus' ministry was so often about reducing the number of followers, not increasing them. And modern Christianity has flipped this where we say, well, we exist to appeal to the world. No, 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 we don't exist to appeal to the outside world. We exist to bring glory to God. And he says that not, the path is narrow. And so he's going to lay out the sort of the conditions, that, that fine print. And I'll say it a couple times today, but like, because I, it's such one of these, uh, you know, if you have prayer indicators in your life, like things that you go, oh, I need to pray. Every time I hear an ambulance, okay, we pray for first responders. We pray for that incident. We pray for the law enforcement. Like, in our, like it's just something we do. And, uh, like, I, I love it now because even when I forget to do that, my kids are like, hey, Dad, aren't we supposed to pray for the cops? Yeah, yeah, kid, like, let, let's pray. <clears throat> and so when you see one of those little acknowledgement pop-up windows on your phone, think about the terms and conditions that Jesus lays out. I've been doing this all week, and I am shocked at how many little pop-up windows 
that I get on my phone, on the computer, and I just click acknowledge, and now I'm thinking, am I willing to follow after Jesus in this way? And so now I've turned it for the gospel's sake. Hope it sticks. Okay, so verse 34, he said he summoned the crowd. So now there's the crowd. Jesus has now made a spectacle in this very public area that's very non-Jewish with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, number one, he must deny himself. That kind of cuts against the American dream. Like, he says, well, if you, if you want to follow after me, you need to put yourself in second place. Everything. Like, well, how do we expand upon this? If you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, <clears throat> to the passage that people so often go to, you know, they want to know about, where does it say that every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord? Which is in Philippians chapter 2, but the, the whole the whole context, to, to, to read the greater context, we'll start in verse 1, but the, the context, the point is in verse 5. So Paul writes here, while under arrest, verse 1 of chapter 2, therefore if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5, the key of all of this, what we're instructed to do as followers of Christ is to have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you can go back to Mark. So when Jesus says he must deny himself, well, what's our example? Our example is Jesus. Jesus being God became man. That's bad enough in its own right. He was without sin. He served. I think, of, I think we're coming to it in Mark chapter 8 where he says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. To deny ourselves just individually. You know, Magic Mountain and cutting in line for people or you say, hey, go in front of me. I don't know why Magic Mountain came up. Maybe I'm due for a trip. Um, when you're merging in traffic, you say, you first, madame, you know, or whoever, you know, or like, no, I got to get pole position. I'm very important. In our marriages, do you put your spouse above yourself? Uh, just others, whoever you interact with. We live in a world that's all about numero uno. 
And Jesus says, no, you need to deny yourself. You have other passages, you were bought at a price. You're no longer your own. You must deny yourself. I've been thinking a lot about, I grew up listening to Billy Joel and the one song that's really good. And I think it's really popular because it feeds into the human flesh. (laughs) This is my life. I'm not going to sing it for you, but for those of you that know my life, I mean, it just like, that's a song that fires you up. You're like, yeah, yeah, sing it, Billy. You know, now I don't even know the words. Maybe God's taking them from my mind right now. But it's like everything, beat it, punk. This is my life. I could do whatever I want. Well, that's not Christian. It's not biblical. That's not what Jesus is. Jesus says, no, you deny yourself. That's a hard one. So if you want to follow Jesus, deny yourself. It's no longer about you. And take up his cross. Now, we're not talking about jewelry. See, now we've so distorted what the cross is that it's, it's even difficult to, to, to share this one. The cross is the most heinous form of capital punishment that the world has ever known. This is something that the Romans did very, very well. During Jesus' time, the cross was, was not at all jewelry. This isn't something you see at Robin's Brothers or, the, you know, like the mall, like, ooh, look at that gold cross and there's some pretty diamonds on it and, oh, that would look nice. This was, the Romans would take somebody that didn't, follow their law. It was a tool to demonstrate that Rome had the authority. And if you were to kick against Rome, this is what Rome would do to you. And it would, it would demonstrate to others as a warning that if you want to go against Rome, this will be you. And the individual would be beaten ruthlessly, then nailed to the cross, you know, nails through your wrist, not your hands, because your hands, it would, the nail could slide out, so you do it for the wrist. You would be there, and so you had to stand up in order to exhale, but your body would be limp, and you basically, over the course of a lot of time, you would suffocate. And you were hung there naked as the sort of the main entrance into the town. It was Horrific. I think of like maybe having like little electric chairs around our necks, you know, like if we could market those or like, like we don't even, we barely do capital punishment anymore. And if we do, it's like often a sterile thing in the, the background that nobody sees. So Jesus says, number one, deny yourself. And then number two, he says, take up your cross, take up your cross. But th- that was also part of the execution. You know, Jesus carried his cross to the outside town. T- that wasn't anything special for Jesus. This was Rome saying, you're acknowledging that you were wrong and that Rome was right and doing so you're bringing the tool that is going to take your life to the edge of town so that everybody can see and you're participating in your execution. So deny, so deny like that one, like, I mean, it's hard enough to get over that one if we're like, deny yourself. But now we're to take up the tool that is used to take your life. I don't know. 
Like it's really easy to say, oh yeah, Jesus, I do. yeah, yeah, no problem. But, but, but even today, like as I finish, can, can I make it the rest of today denying myself? Can I take it the rest of the day saying, Lord, this life isn't mine? And then we get to the third one, follow me, which that one seems a little bit easy. But what Jesus is telling these guys, he's saying, this is my path. I'm heading to Jerusalem. They're going to take me into custody. They're going to take my life. This is my path. And if you follow me, this is going to be your path. And this is the path of like, I don't have a percentage, 80% of Christianity, like historically, 90% of Christianity. Like we are, we live in such an anomaly as Christians in the United States. For the rest of the world, the whole Muslim world, if you accept Christ as your Savior and you begin to follow him, that means your whole community is turning on you. That means your whole family is turning on you. That, that means under Sharia law that your father has an obligation then to execute you. Like this is what followers of Christ have endured. So many people burned at the stake. So many people to give us the word of God have given their lives so that the word of God could get into our, our hands. Jesus says, verse 35, the great paradox, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. If you want to save your life, it doesn't seem right that you give it up, that you surrender all. That doesn't seem the way to like having the best life now. But whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. It's a huge paradox. And the president of the IMB, or maybe he's not the president anymore of the Southern Baptist Convention, our missions arm of the denomination, which we are a part of, which I actually am proud of, David Platt. He wrote a book called Radical, and the title summarizes it. It's pretty radical, but it's pretty Christian. He writes this, as if it weren't enough, Jesus finished his seeker-sensitive plea, that's a kind of a, (laughs) with a pull-at-your-heartstrings conclusion. If any of you who does not give up everything, let me start again, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Give up everything you have. Carry a cross and hate your family. This sounds a lot different than admit, believe, confess, and pray a prayer after me. Why would anybody do this? Like, why, why would anyone do this? Because the message of Christ isn't a touchy-feely like, oh, full of cotton candy and like, hey, follow me. All your problems are going to go away. No, the reality is you follow Jesus your problems are going to compound in this life. But he's making an offer of life eternal. He's offering you eternal peace, a contentment which the world cannot bring you. Jim Elliott, one of the missionaries that was martyred by the Aka Indians down in Ecuador, 
His most famous quote was discovered after his death, after he was murdered for sharing Christ with these tribal people that they knew would ultimately kill him. In his journal, after his death, they found uh, what he'd written down. And he wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And he's saying, you can't keep your life. Like, your life, no matter how long you live, it's going to seem like super, super short. You know, to to bring some livelihood, to continue to quote Roger Redding, you know, life is like a a roll of toilet paper. The farther in you get, the faster it goes. I think that's just beautiful, you know, so simple. Like, life speeds along. And at at the end of your life, whether that happens at 12 years old or it happens at 112 years old, life is like that. And, And our lives are not our own. Whether you reject Christ or not, you didn't do anything to enter into this world. And Jesus is saying, you only have a short window to get your life right with me. And if you get your life with me, I offer you everything. There is nothing this world can give you. The world will tell you it can give you peace and contentment and joy, but it can't. It will rob you of all of those things. And the harder you chase, the more exposed your emptiness is. All you got to do is a quick study of people who won the lottery. Athletes that are multimillionaires who've lost everything. All, all that does is expose their emptiness. It doesn't, it doesn't provide what Jesus is offering here. Verse 36, what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That's a rhetorical question. It doesn't profit you anything to give up your soul. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's a really low bar. I mean, I know five-year-olds that would give up their souls for a piece of candy. You, it might be, I think, of teenage years, uh, trying to please those that really don't even care about you, that you want their... You like this. Uh, uh, The one thing I really love about older people, and I'm not going to define older people, (laughs) is I've noticed that the older they get, the less they seem to care about people, and they just say stuff that's like, you can't say that. Well, I can't. I I? I don't care about offending anybody. (laughs) Because they kind of learn that all the people you're trying to impress, they don't like, there's not really a depth there. And I'm not saying that all of those people are spiritually minded, but the one who we should care about is what God thinks. Uh, C.T. Studd was a theologian who's famous for a poem that he wrote. I'm not going to read the whole poem. But one of the stanzas in the poem, he says, Only one life will, t- will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. And this is what Christ is pressing for. Give your life to him. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me. See, we're so removed from the culture of crucifixion. Uh, Like, I I often say, oh, the cross is like the most humiliating and shameful way for um, for a Jewish person to die. 
but that's just ridiculous. It has nothing to do with being Jewish. I don't like any volunteers to be crucified naked at the edge of town where you have to watch people naked for like three days coming and going, looking at you as you die. For those that followed Jesus who watched him publicly up there, you know, and I was raised in the Catholic Church and we, we put a little loincloth over him, but that wasn't, that, like that wasn't, that's us, even in the, the, the horrificness of a crucifix where Jesus is still on the cross, we've toned it down. And so these followers, are you going to be ashamed of me about the death I'm about to die? Are you going to be ashamed of my words? How many of us, I don't even think we catch this one, my words. The words of Jesus aren't just the red ones, they're all of them in this book. Like from Genesis to Revelation, these are the words of Jesus. And there, I would beg to suggest that there are many words in this book that we are embarrassed of because our culture says that's not politically correct. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus is saying it's going to be rough. And we know that the life of the apostles, except for Judas, who went the way of the world and took his own life, the rest of them were executed for their faith. Now, John is the exception. He was executed, but they failed. And so then he was able to live out his days um, because of the superstition that they failed in boiling him alive. So he was allowed to continue to live. And who knows the ramifications of being boiled. Um, So these guys walked the path of Jesus they understood that there's nothing that this world can offer that can bring the contentment that Jesus offers. There's no sorrow and agony. Like, there's nothing this world can do to you. I I would encourage you to read books on the martyred church. You know, I I know I've referenced this book, The Insanity of God. Um, I'd encourage you to get it and to read it. And the guy said, I went, I went expecting to teach the persecuted church around the world about living for Jesus. He's like, but in reality is God sent me there to learn about Christianity. Because the persecuted world is not, is not praying for lack of persecution. They actually are praying for us that we would experience Christ and the depth and the riches that they, uh, they receive in their suffering. And so we're going to take communion now. I'm going to ask the guys to come forward and to get the elements. They can, they can come up. Um, <clears throat> as they pass out the elements, I'm going to remind you that communion is for those who have given their life to Christ. They're going to pass them out. And you guys can begin passing them out right now. <clears throat> um, So as they're passing them out, hold the elements. And if you're not a believer, it's okay to pass. You don't have to take that. I would rather uh, this be for people who know that they have accepted the terms and uh, conditions that Christ has laid before us. Um, They're going to pass them out, and we can just listen to me as they're passing them out. As these are going out, I want us just to, to ponder what Jesus said and the, and the things that have been asked of us. 
Again, I'm going to quote from David Platt, who writes this, I could not help but to think that somewhere along the line, we have missed what is radical about our faith and replaced it with what is comfortable. We are settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is all about abandoning ourselves. And so during this time, as you're getting the elements, um, just to sit quietly, uh, to consider what Christ has asked us to do, this is the way that Christ went. This represents his broken body, the blood that was shed for us. And he's asking us to follow after him in the same way. And so confess sin that comes to your mind. Question your heart as you're following him. Um, This isn't me making this up. This is what Jesus said. Pick up your cross and follow me. So what we, we have in our hands is you have a, a, a broken gluten-free cracker uh, in your hand and you have a little thing of grape juice and it's, it's, a, it's a symbol of the gospel. It's a, it's, a, it's a symbol of what Jesus said was coming. This represents, it's a reflection of his body uh, that was broken, that was beaten, it was nailed to a cro- cross um, absorbing the wrath uh, of God that was due for sin, for all sin, our sin, uh, past, present, future. And he was nailed to the cross, and we're told that God's wrath was satisfied in this action, that he paid our debt in full. We have the juice, which is uh, a reflection or a, a symbol of um, the new covenant that Jesus has paid it for good. It's once and for all. It's a transaction that was sufficient legally on our behalf. This is what he's done for us. Um, He tells us that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Um, there, there, There is an exchange here. It's... It's like the old hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. 
And, and there's, a, there's a contextual connection that during Jesus' day, when, when the whole process of, of a boy and girl getting engaged, that the boy would go make preparations, he would prepare a home, he would do all of these things to be able to receive a wife. And then w- that we understand is that he would then go, when everything was ready and he was ready to be the man of the home and to, to lead the family, he would go back to her and he would offer her a glass of wine. And the glass of wine was saying, I've given everything of myself for you, and I offer this glass of wine as a gift, offering my life to you. And so she could turn it down at that point. But if she took the glass, she's saying, I accept your gift of everything that you're giving, and in return, I'm giving everything that I am to you. And it's interesting that the New Testament would refer to the church as what? The bride of Christ. And so I don't want us to take this lightly. So what we're saying is, yes, Jesus, I acknowledge that what you have done for me, you have died on the cross because of my sin. You've offered it to me. You said, if you want to follow after me, this is the path, that my life is no longer my life, it's your life. I give myself to you. I, I want to deny myself. I, I want to pick up my cross. And... With that, we, I think, all pray the prayer, Lord, help me to do this. Help me to bring you glory. Help me to be strong. Help me uh, to have the grace that I need to endure day by day. And so my prayer as we take communion is that we would listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 12.1, who says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for what Jesus did for us. Father, we confess that so often we look at this gift uh, like it didn't come at great expense. We look at this gift like there's no expectation on ourselves, on our own lives. And we confess that to you. Father, we ask, that you would help us to be the kind of followers that bring you much glory. None of us are perfect. All of us have room for all sorts of growth. And so, Lord, we pray that as we take communion, that you would take us back to the cross, that you would remind us of what Jesus has done on our behalf, what he is offering to us, this eternal life, peace, and contentment that only come from him. And, Lord, that we would give you our lives anew, that we would stand before you, Lord, saying, Lord, here I am, use me however you see fit. And Lord, may you give us the strength to live out that prayer in our daily lives. And it's in Christ's good name we pray, amen.